each and every day we get upon this earth is soaked with meaning and purpose. The challenge is we get so used to the routine, so lulled by the mundane, our days start to blend together and fade with familiarity. If we're not careful, we can look back and realize we've wasted what we've been given. But if we could begin to understand the brevity of this life, the eternal implications of how we live now, we can start to live our lives with deeper purpose and urgency. Each day becomes a possibility for purpose. Each moment becomes an opportunity for meaning. The book of James calls us to live out this brief moment we've been given upon this earth with wisdom, with urgency, with significance. It beckons you. Don't waste your life. Oh, how are we doing this morning, Rise? Oh, you guys ready to start a new book today? The book of James. So a number of years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were invited to a kid's birthday slash costume party, okay? There's a group of people we, we were just getting to know. We're building friendships and stuff like that. And uh, it was right around Halloween. And so we're like, this sounds fun. And you don't want to be that guy. You know what I'm saying? You get invited to a costume party. You don't want to be too cool for school. You, you, you're like, no, like, these are new relationships. We're going to, like, we're going to show up. And if you know anything about my wife, Jessie, um, she goes all out. Okay, she does not do anything half-heartedly. And so she starts researching costumes, things that are trendy, and uh, she buys a costume for me and then puts me in the costume. <laughs> and uh, I was not, not totally feeling it, to be honest with you. Um, she, I don't know why I'm going to show you this picture, but I'm going to show you a picture of it. And this is me uh, driving to this party. Full beard, that's a, literally a full body suit, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and so we get there, and we unload the kids, and they have their costumes, and we get in, and uh, we walk through the door, and we realize at that moment what most people interpreted kids' birthday slash costume party as was the kids will be wearing costumes, <laughs> Now, there was a couple parents that had, like, a jersey on. You know what I'm saying? But I walk in, full makeup, long hair, beard, bodysuit, and, and it was the most uncomfortable two hours of my life. <laughs> People would walk up to me like, what are you supposed to be? I'm like, I don't know. What are you supposed to be, a dad who hates costumes, right? <laughs> like, what, what is happening? And just the whole time, like, conversations were awkward, Right? I'm not sure if they were more awkward for me or for them, but they were just awkward. And we sat there for two hours, party was over, kids in the car, I get behind the driving, driver's wheel and uh, I look at my wife and I say, never again. And she looks at me and she goes, never, never, <laughs> right? Never, never. And here's the thing, I feel like so many of us are walking through this life um, trying to walk in a false identity. And we do not feel comfortable in our own skin because we are, we are trying to impress others. We are trying to be something that we are not, and we wonder why we feel so dissatisfied with the lives that we are living. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to waste my life pretending I'm something I'm not. What I want is to become who God has actually made me to live this little time I have here on this earth with wisdom and urgency and joy. And so as we embark on this journey, 
I want to invite you as we work through the book of James to take off the mask and to live a life of meaning and purpose and actually root your life in the person of Jesus. That we would allow this faith that we have in Christ to be a real life transforming experience. And what we need is we need a shift in our identity from what others, what we think others want us to be to who God has made us to be. And so as we open the book and we are intro, introduced to this person of James, we're gonna see this drastic shift in his identity. He goes through this shift from skeptic to servant. Look at verse one, James chapter one, verse one. What did he say? Open the line. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let me give a little background so we can understand who James is. James is, he's the half-brother of Jesus, Okay, so he grew up with Jesus, which I always imagine, I always want to know, like, what was that like with Jesus? Like, it says he grew in wisdom and stature, but he was always fully God. So what was that like having Jesus as like a sibling? I don't know if you ever seen that meme, uh, you know, that, that cartoon of, of Mary, you know, pointing at Jesus, trying to give him a bath, saying in, and he's just standing on the water, like, you know, right? <laughs> do, do you ever think there was a point? where Jesus realized he had resurrection power and so they like lost the pet and they just stopped, they just stopped burying pets after that, you know? <laughs> like as parents, it just never became a thing. Or, or do you ever wonder, like, was it ever his turn to make dinner and he accidentally made fish and chips for the whole town, right? Just <laughs> multiplied enough for 5,000. Or, or even, you, you know, some of his, what we know is there was a glimpse of his miraculous powers. He gave it because Mary, his very first miracle, they're at a wedding, and they run out of wine. And mom is like, hey, Jesus, <laughs> you know that little trick you do with mommy's juice box? You know, right? You know, right? And, and Jesus is like, woman, this has nothing to do with me. So we know there's something. But so James, he grew up as the brother of Jesus, yet he's a skeptic. We know this because as we open the pages of Scripture, we see this, these glimpses. James is scattered all throughout the Gospels. Look at Matthew 13, okay? Coming to his hometown, Jesus comes back to his hometown. He began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers, what does it say right there, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So James is right there. He is the brother of Jesus. Go forward a little bit. Mark chapter three says, then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family, who's his family? James is one of his brothers. When his family heard about this, they didn't celebrate, they didn't rejoice. It says they went to take charge of him for he, they said, he is out of his mind. This is, this is how James, the brother of Jesus, treats Jesus. And then later in John, we read, after this, Jesus went around Galilee. Okay, so he's preaching the gospel. He's introducing himself to others. It says, he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders, they were looking for a way to kill him. Jesus' brothers, who, who's one of his brothers? James. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. 
No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And so you read that and you're like, okay, cool. They finally get it. They're they're, they're trying to promote him. But then the next line reveals that that's not the case at all. It says, for even his own brothers did not believe him. They're, They're trying to be done with him. This is James. He does not seem like the kind of person who's gonna write scripture, does he? He does not seem like the kind of person who we want to look to and build our lives upon their teaching, but something happens because we know this is what we read in the Gospels, and then Jesus dies, is buried, raises again, ascends to heaven, sends to the church, and then what we see is James is a foundational pillar in the church. Look at it, Galatians 2. Paul is, he's writing to the Galatians about his story of being called into ministry. And he says, James, Cephas, also known as Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars. He's saying, this same skeptic, this man who opposed Jesus, he's now a pillar of the church. Gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. He's saying, you know who played a pivotal role as the greatest missionary in the world, at me being Paul, you know who played a pivotal role in that? James, the brother of Jesus. He goes from skeptic, opposing Jesus, to now he's a pillar. Acts 12, we see this story where, where Peter, he's, he's set free from prison. And it says, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. He's telling them this story, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And what does he say? He says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. James is so foundational to the church that even Peter, the leader of the early church, is like, hey, this just happened. Somebody go tell James. Somebody go tell James. So how does he go from scoffing to scripture? How does he move from doubter to disciple, mocker to pillar, skeptic to servant? Let me tell you how. It actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. He has a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Says This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he writes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to who? James. That's how you go from skeptic to servant. You have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And what we find is that James's foundational identity changed from a life of skepticism to a life of servanthood when he met Jesus, when he saw the resurrected King Jesus in that form. And so as we come to this letter, we have to understand that the author of this letter that we are about to read He calls us to make the most of every moment, to watch our words and favoritism towards others. What we have is a man who has been radically transformed and changed by Christ. He is writing out of that transformation, calling you and I to experience the same life-transforming power. Anybody else want their life flipped upside down by Jesus? See, we have to be careful when we come to Scripture especially with a book like this, because this is what would be categorized as wisdom literature. And so we're gonna see all these brilliant ideas from James, things about living every day like it could be our last, taming our tongue, putting our faith into action. 
And we have this temptation to say, okay, if I'm going to be, uh, if I'm going to actually live with meaning, I need to just follow these rules. I need to have wisdom in my life. But what we need in order to not waste our lives is not better behavior and insight. It's an encounter with the risen king. When we come to scripture, we have to say, how does this point me to Jesus? We need an encounter with Jesus that changes our identity. A meeting, we need meet to meet Jesus. And that's what gives us deeper meaning in our lives, to experience his transforming love that pushes us to actually put our faith in action and to have an understanding of his sacrifice. And that is what transforms how we understand our own suffering so that we can get our next thing that we need to live a life of purpose and meaning and not waste it, we actually need a shift in perspective. And what I mean by that is we need to count it all joy. This is what he says, the very next verse. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's funny, there's usually like cheering at this verse. Celebrating, weeping, mourning, yes, joy. Usually somebody's got a good, you know, coffee mug, right? Joy and suffering, right? The bumper sticker, oh, yes, too blessed to be depressed, right? You know, going around, all these moments, right? Of course course we don't. You know why? Because we hate trials. We hate suffering. We hate pain. Think about most of our prayers are centered around avoiding trials, avoiding pain and suffering. Why, why do we hate these things? Well, theologically first, because they suck. <laughs> they do, right? No one's going around, oh man, my rent was just rejected because my bank account was short. PTL, praise the Lord, right? <laughs> Nobody's walking around saying my kids are rebelling against me and spiraling out of control, hashtag too blessed to be depressed. No, no, right? We're not saying these kind of things. In fact, this phrase here, various kinds, it means multicolored trials, spotted trials, splotchy trials. Anyone facing some multicolored splotchy trials in their life right now? It, it seems like when it rains, it pours, does it not? Here's a little financial, here's some relational pain, and, you know, here's some emotional pain. And, oh, by the way, society is collapsing around you. Multicolored, spotted, splotchy trials. You guys, we don't rejoice in trials because trials can be brutal and painful and miserable. But there's a deeper reason. It's because we've been lied to about trials. And here's what I mean. When suffering comes, we've been told that it's God's punishment and disfavor on our lives. And so we think something is going wrong. Either we've done something wrong or his sovereignty is waning. But this passage, this teaching here in James, it tells us that trials are not for our punishment. They're actually for producing perseverance and perfection. They're producing something in us. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The the word joy here, here's a little definition how we need to think about joy. It's a delight, excitement, or sheer gladness that's acquired by the anticipation, acquisition, or even the expectation of something great and wonderful. See, happiness is tied to current circumstances, but joy goes so far beyond. Joy is saying, no, no, I, 
I may not be happy about what's happening because it's painful. And I'm not trying to diminish the pain that you're going through. And that's not what James is trying to do. James is saying, no, no, find joy, not happy, joy, because joy, you can look down the road and says, God is doing something far greater. James is not saying find joy in the hard times. Look for it. Joy isn't in the trial. Joy is in what the trial is producing. And he's telling us that God has great purpose in our trials. He's forming. He's making. He's shaping. He's building us into something more beautiful, wonderful, and steadfast than we ever imagined. And we need these trials. One of my wife's dream trips is she's always wanted to go to Europe. And so for 2024, we've been planning this trip to um, go over to Europe, and, and at, we looked at different countries we want to go, and, and one of the places we want to go, and we'll probably spend most of our time, is Italy. And um, when we go to, my hope is when we end up in Italy, we end up in Florence, because um, I, there is an, there's actually a museum, the Academy Gallery, that I want to go, because there's a famous statue of Michelangelo's there. Uh, it's the Statue of David. Now, I know it's like a projection on a screen, but can you just like take a minute, a moment, and just absorb the detail in this? It's in, like the veins in the hand, the curls of the hair, the flaring of the nostrils. Like there is such, it, it's just incredible. The detail of this is absolutely, it, it's incredible. Now here's what, if you've ever studied Michelangelo, you know what is amazing about him is he believed that the sculptor was not an artist, the sculptor was a tool. He believed, when he approached a piece of marble, he says, no, I'm not creating something, I'm just revealing something that's already there. Like, in this piece of marble is a David. And, and I, need to, I need to chip away, that is my task, is just to chip away the access to reveal the beautiful work of art underneath it all. But, but he has to chip away. And what are Michelangelo's tools in, in sculpting? It's the hammer and the chisel. It's revi- refining and revealing the work of art underneath. And he, looks at, he would look at a piece of marble and he said, there is a David in there and I just want to reveal it. And how I'm going to do it is I'm going to do it through chipping away at the access. And what James is telling us is that God sees you right now. He doesn't see just a hunk of marble. He sees his own son. And he needs to reveal the character and the nature and and transform you more and more and more into the image of Jesus. And the reason you don't rejoice in the trials and the suffering is because we cannot see what God is producing through them. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. No, this is how I reveal it. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. At the same museum, there, there's another piece of art called The Awakening, and it's very little known. It, it's not a well-known sculpture. You know why it's not well-known? Because uh, David never finished it. He, he just began the work. It's like the work of art. It, it's almost like it's trapped in there. Like you can, you can see this face and this beard and this body breaking free but it needs more hammering. It needs more chiseling. It needs more refinement, more revealment. 
And, and, and actually, if you look at these two next to each other and compare them, you would, you would think like one was done by a great artist and one was done by your child, right? Some of you guys are like, I think I can see that there's something there. But what's the difference? One was refined by the painful chisel and hammer of trials and one was not yet. And what James is telling us here is there is a piece of art, a beautiful Christ-like sculpture underneath all of that hard outer shell, but God has some work to do in you. And how's he gonna do it? He's gonna do it through the hammer and the chisel of trials and suffering. See, trials are God's tool for bringing out his masterpiece. This is how we have to understand it. The pain that you're going through, the suffering, and yet how often? How often do we pray against these things? Do we pray against trials? God, would you just take this away? God, why are you allowing this to happen? James tells us why. He says, God's goal for you in the trial you are facing is making you more and more like his son Jesus. That is what perfection is. We will never attain to it in this life. But, but what if our goal of our lives to be, was to be more like Jesus? We would celebrate and we would rejoice in a different way. What if we, are, we longed for sanctification more than we longed for simplicity? What if we longed for progress more than we longed for a lack of pain? What if we longed for exaltation more than we longed for ease? See, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This phrase, steadfastness, it means to bear the weight, to actually be able to carry, to be able to endure. You start, let's say you start working out, right? You don't just show up and be like, I want to lift as much as that gal or I want to lift as much as that guy and just throw the weight on there and then, okay, I'm ready to go. Like, I, I just want to get stronger, so let's just do it, right? What would happen? You would collapse like a lawn chair, would you not? You would buckle under the weight because you have not built up the strength to be able to bear that weight. And it's an, actually an interesting process if you study things like exercise and muscle, muscle growth. You know what, do you know how you build muscle? You, you know why you feel sore after you lift something heavy? Because your muscle fibers are literally tearing. They are tearing apart, and then you need rest and recovery and protein to build them back together. And then you go exercise again, and your muscle fibers tear apart, and they build back stronger. They tear apart, and they build back stronger. That is how, that, this is what he is saying. Saying, testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's the breaking down of your reliance on yourself. It's breaking you from your, I believe in myself, I can do it attitude that pushes us towards God who can do it all. It's by weaning us off of worldly solutions and strengthening you and the Spirit's power. This is what trials do. I mean, you remember those moments where you're like, I, I literally, I cannot get through this without you, Lord. You know what God is saying in that moment? He's saying, my child, I love you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. See, a trial only produces growth when a trial pushes us to the Lord. And that's the goal of these things, that we would 
J.C. Riley put it like this. He says, trials are intended to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible and drive us to our knees. The reason you have trials in your life, James is saying, is because there is a masterpiece, a Christ-likeness that could not be developed by just sitting in peace and quiet and ease and joy. Um, the Lord has some work to do. And the trials are his tools. I remember five years ago, I was sitting uh, with a good friend of mine. It was me and my wife and my friend Jared from Idaho and, and his wife, Meredith. And, and we're sitting there having this conversation and we were talking about church planting. And we were about four years into our church plant. And he said, what's been hard? Tell me about some of the trials you've faced and the hardship you faced. And uh, I looked at him and I said, honestly, ma'am, uh, none. There's this weird thing that's happened in my life, Jared. Um, I haven't, I really haven't faced a lot of pain. I haven't lost somebody I love. I haven't felt betrayal. I have had amazing friends. Uh, the four years of church planting have been nothing but a joy. And he looked at me and he just said, praise God for that. That's, that's amazing. I don't think that's what, how it's going to continue. <laughs> but let's just praise God in this moment. Now, I, I kid you not, the next day is when my mom passed away. 59 years old, completely healthy as far as we knew. A year after that, my closest friend betrayed me. The guy who planted our church with us betrayed me in a way that I've never, in the deepest way I've ever experienced in my life. A year after that, we kept pressing forward. A year after that, uh, we... We got this building and we renovated it and we're gonna have our grand opening and we have this plan, it's amazing. March 22nd, 2020 will be a day to remember, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why are you all laughing at my pain? <laughs> a year after that, my little sister had to bury her infant baby boy. A year after that, uh, my right-hand man in ministry, a guy who we had helped build this together, and I actually thought we would be side-by-side side for the next 10, 20 years. He was like, hey, the Lord is calling me to go plant elsewhere. And then over this last year, I faced more criticism, opposition, and honestly, outright meanness from people. Um, let me ask you a question. Is God mad at me? Is God punishing me? Um, now, I think James is reminding me that God wants to use me for big things. And he needs to do a big work in me before he does a big work through me. And see, these trials, listen, they've shaped me in an amazing way. I have a deeper compassion for those who grieve because of what I've gone through. These trials have made me love my loyal and steadfast friends all the more. They've made me value and appreciate this season that I have with you because I never know when it's gonna end. Never know how long somebody will be in relationship and a part of this church. They've given me clarity and resolve that I cannot care about what fellow man thinks of me because I am not running my race for anyone else. I am running my race for the crown that is to come. And this is where 
James ends this section is the last shift that we need to make is a shift in the goal. And our joy is actually in the reward that is to come. There's no promise of ease, no promise of celebration in this life. I mean, I believe that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. He said, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. But but if our only reward if all we're living for is something good happening on this earth, I think we miss out on the joy that is to come. We miss out on the bigger picture. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, The phrase there, steadfast under trial, stood the test. It's easy to start to think as these trials are coming, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm weak and I'm worn down and I'm tired and I need to work harder. And here's what you're called to do. This is what James is calling you to do in the trial. You know what it is? Hold on to Jesus. Cling to him. It's not work harder, do more, be better. It's cling to Jesus. That's the phrase, steadfastness. To stand firm is I'm gonna hold on to Christ in the middle of the storm because he is the one who with joy set before him, he endured the cross. He is the one who endured opposition from sinful men. He is the one who completed the work and says it is finished. And you realize that standing firm and clinging to Jesus in suffering, that's how God makes us like Jesus And that's how God connects us deeper to Jesus. Because we get to suffer with him. And we get to be connected to one who knows our wounds and our pains. And we feel so seen and loved in those moments. And so let the trial push you to lean on Jesus, not blame on Jesus. You hear me? I know in this room there is some pain. Would you lean on Jesus, not blame on Jesus? Would you turn to him and his grace and his compassion? Christians, we end up saying these really foolish things. One of the phrases that you'll hear if you're around the church at all, even if you're brand new, at some point somebody's gonna say it, okay? And they're gonna say, God will never allow you to go through something you cannot handle. Um, I've read this thing, okay? Just so you know, it's not in there. It does not say that. Uh, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> that's the Greek. Don't be mad at me. <clears throat> but here's what I do know. He will never put you through something that he can't handle. And this is why Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That when these trials come, that we would consider it pure joy. Because it draws us closer to God. And he promises in his word that he will draw near to the brokenhearted. And so what if we became a people who actually rejoice in the trials because they're drawing us closer to Jesus and making us more and more in his image? This is why Paul can write in in 2 Corinthians, he says, for our momentary light affliction. It doesn't feel like momentary light affliction. This almost feels offensive when you first read it. You're like, do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what I've suffered? And and Paul's like, "I, I actually do. Because Paul suffered as well. These early Christians, they did not have like, 
you know, their affliction and opposition was not, you know, um, being banned on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? It was a little, it went a little deeper than that. And he's saying our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. He's saying look to the future, find your joy in what is to come. This language here by James, he says, the crown of life. You know what the, the phrase there, crown, it's, the, it's, an, Olympic, it's, a, it's a, an Olympic crown. If you have run the race, steadfast, stood the test, received the crown. This is running the race language. And he's saying you gotta stay moving. You gotta be steadfast. It's all of this opposite. It's building up strength that you can make it through this life and get to the end and the Lord can, you can stand before him and he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he says, you look more and more like Jesus every day. Did you fall down? Yes, you did fall down. I, I want you to see this clip from a gal running a race. Go ahead, go ahead and play that. And, and, and as she's walking around, that's Heather Dornadin. Watch her as she comes near the, into the final lap. She gets in the lead and then boom, okay? Just absolutely completely biffs it, okay? And you can see, she's making her push, gets in the first place, and then the girl like, literally like jumps over her on her head, right? Some of you guys are like, I feel this in a deep way right now. <laughs> like, this is like my spirit animal right here. Like, this is basically describes my, my last year of what I've, what I've been going through. You feel it. But what James says is steadfast, what James said, it says is stand the test. You want another, another way to phrase that? The one who doesn't give up. The one who, when they fall, they get back up and keep running the race because it's not about this moment. It's not about this brokenness. It's not about this pain. It's about what is to come and saying, I want to stand before the Lord one day. But here's the thing. We are going to fall and we have to get back up. We have to keep running. We have to withstand. And at the end, what there is, is there's a crown of glory, a crown of life. And so I just, I want you to just watch the rest of this race with me and just experience this together. Lucky she wasn't injured. Her teammate just went to the front though, so they may be able to recover from that. And Dornan is flying down the back She is she catching is, up. She is going to catch Vaughn Dorn, and she may catch the leader. Wow. wow. She's got Vaughn. This is a gutsy effort for Dornan. She's moving to third. Dornan coming down the stretch from the outside. Dornan coming on strong. I couldn't tell you the outcome of another race in my life, but I've remembered that one for years. And it's the trials, it's the fall that makes it so beautiful. So what if in the midst of our trials we kept running? What if in the midst of our pain we kept pressing into Jesus? What if in this light and momentary suffering that we're in, that's what Paul calls it, light and momentary, what if it was producing an incomparably eternal weight of glory, a prize, a crown, a refinement, a sculpture that God actually wants to use in powerful ways. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
Blessed is the woman who gets up when she falls. Blessed is the child of God who rejoices in suffering. Blessed is the father who keeps loving. Blessed is the disciple who keeps obeying. Blessed is the follower of Jesus who is faithful. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Lord, we are here not pretending life is easy, not pretending the pain has gone away, but we are here as your children, as you call us your workmanship, as you call us jars of clay, asking to be molded into the image of your son. We don't want to idly wander through this life, but Lord, we don't want this pain to be wasted. And so this pain and these trials that we face, would you use them to shape our identity in a new way? Would you use them for your glory? Would you use them to chip away at the rough edges and reveal your masterpiece that you've created us to be, that we would reflect and reveal and image your son? And as I pray, I, I just, just in this moment, I just want to ask, as you're sitting there, anybody, anybody just want to admit, you're, you're facing some trials right now, just raise your hand. Yeah, and just keep them up. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, here, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do as you sit there and raise your hand because we are a church. Um, I, I, I wanna ask you to just stand up right where we're at. Not a story you have to share, just something to, be, to admit. Anybody else? Okay, here's what I'm gonna ask as we move into a time of worship that some of you would gather around those who are standing and just put a hand on their shoulder, a hand on their back. Uh, go ahead and stand up. Start gathering around them right now because we're the church. We're not meant to be, you may know them, you may have no idea who they are. And, and here's my ask, right? Right where you're at, would you just start praying for them out loud? Bring these requests before the Lord. The Lord sees and he knows. Just keep praying as I pray. Keep praying as we worship. And then we'll move into a time of worship. Lord, you see these faces. Lord, you know these stories. You know the pain and the hardship and the trials that people are facing. And even this act of surrender standing before you as a moment of acknowledging that you are doing something big and mighty. And so, well, Lord, we need your spirit. We need your grace and we need your goodness. Lord, would you refine us and make us more and more in your image?